and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us now. Here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans. We've been walking through the book of Romans for the last few months now, and and, uh, we have made our way to chapter 3. I told you last time we were together that we finished chapter 3, but but I was wrong. Uh, We've got one more look at chapter 3 before we can move into chapter 4. And uh, and I've already told you, and and so this will be the last time that I have to tell you, uh, that the first three chapters in the book of Romans are the toughest. They are hard. We just really have to kind of hang in there and work through them. And and in the first three chapters, Paul, his whole theme for the letter that he writes to the, to the people at Rome, to the church at Rome and the churches in Rome, is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And so Paul is focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. But in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, in order to really help us understand the good news, he talks to us first about the bad news. And he spends a lot of time talking about the bad news. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners separated from God, doomed to an eternity in hell, and there's nothing we can do about it. That's the bad news. Now, the reason Paul spends so much time talking about the bad news is because he knows that the bad news is hard for you to believe. There is something in us that believes we are good. Deep down inside, I'm good. We ask those questions we've talked about. Why would, why, would, uh, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, the assumption is with that question we often ask that we're good people. And Paul says, there's none good, no, not one. All of us have sinned, and he knows that sometimes we have a tendency, even within the church, to think that the bad people are out there. And Paul says, guess what? Those of you that are in here, you are sinners too. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The bad news is we are all sinners, all separated from God, and there's nothing any one of us can do about it. And he drills down deep over and over and over with that truth because he knows that you're going to fight against that truth. And he drills down to say, no, that's, that's the bottom line. Now, once he's established that, he then turns his attention to the good news. And the last time we were together in the latter part of chapter three, Paul finally, having spent all of this time giving us the depressing news that we are separated from God and we are sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. He begins to open the door to the good news and he lets the light and the warmth of the gospel begin to come in. He didn't open the door completely. He just kind of eases it open so that we can begin to understand the truth of the gospel. Now, as he does, what Paul introduces us to in this passage of scripture is this truth that I shared with you last week. Paul says, listen, everything that needs to be done to make it possible for you to go to heaven has already been done in Jesus. So he says, the good news 
is received by faith and not by works. He says you don't earn your way to heaven. You, you, you're not good enough to get in. Because Paul knows now that I began to share the good news with you, there's another thing that you're going to struggle with. And that is that salvation is by faith alone. He knows that there is something in us, even if I believe I'm bad, there's something in me that believes, well, I can fix it. If I just live good enough, or if I, if I do you know, more good than bad, maybe there's a divine set of scales. And if I do more good than bad, when I get to heaven, God's going to weigh it out. And as long as there's more good than bad, then I'm in. And Paul says, hey, here's what I want you to understand. Going to heaven is not based on what you do. It's based on what God's done. The world's method and the religion's method of salvation is always do. It's based on what we do. You've been baptized. You're a member of a church. You live a good life. You believe this. You do that. You do that. It's all about what you do. But the, but the biblical method of salvation is always about what he's done, not what we do. So one of the things that Paul's going to begin to do in the next few chapters He's going to hammer this hard because he knows that we struggle here just like we struggled in understanding that we are sinners. He says, I know you're going to struggle with understanding that, that you are saved by faith. There were people in the church at Rome who believe that they are, are Christians. They are going to heaven because they keep the law. And Paul says, listen, guys, listen. It is not faith in the law that guarantees you a place in heaven. It's the law of faith that guarantees you a place in heaven. So with that in mind, let's read through the text, the latter part, and, uh, and, and then we're going to kind of unpack it together today. Just for context, let's go ahead and begin reading verse 21. We looked at verse 21 down through verse 26 last week. And we'll pick up with 27 down through verse 31 today. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a free gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, that was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time so that we would, he would be the just, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now we pick up with these words. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles only. Since indeed God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish it. Now in those final words, Paul begins to kind of help us understand that law of faith that he references. What does it mean to place our faith and trust in Jesus? And we often hear people say that we are saved by faith in Christ. Well, what is saving faith? Well, that's what I want to talk about in our time together today. There are three questions that I think that this passage of Scripture uh, kind of reveals that we'll try to understand and answer as we move forward. But as we begin to think about this, I, I want to tell you the story that I read this week. And it comes from a, a book that was written by a Christian comedian by the name of Ken Davis. And, uh, and you can actually see Ken on YouTube and, and, and may even see him tell this story uh, somewhere uh, along the way. But Ken uh, tells the story of a time when he was in college. And while he was in college, he had to do a uh, persuasive speech. You might have had to do that in college. And he had to give a persuasive speech. And the professor said that, that you get more points if you are creative in this persuasive speech. So Kent decided that he would present his speech on the law of the pendulum. And so he, he rigged up an apparatus that he brought to class with, with a, a, a rope hanging and, uh, and he attached a kid's toy to it so that he could kind of demonstrate the law of the pendulum. A pendulum, of course, is that apparatus where you would bring that toy up and, and you would release it and let it go and it would swing all the way down and then it comes to a point where it kind of stops and it comes back. And he explained the physics of that and the dynamics of gravity and, and then went into kinetic energy and all that goes with the law of the pendulum. But the bottom line of the law of the pendulum is simply this, and that is when you draw this object back up and if you release it, if you don't put any, any pressure on it, you don't push it, you just simply release it. The law of the pendulum says that that the object that you release will never swing back further than the point where it was released from. It always will come, and it will come all the way back right almost to the spot where it was released, but it will never go past that point. And so he had this apparatus. He put a kind of a chalkboard behind it. He marked where this kid's toy was as he brought it back and kind of marked it on the chalkboard so everybody could see, and he releases it, and it swings. And sure enough, just as he had told them in the law of physics and the law of the pendulum, it swung all the way out, reaches its arcs, stops momentarily, comes back, and then he marks where it stops, and it never comes back to that place. And so he asked everybody in the class, do you, now that I've shared that with you, believe in the law of the pendulum? And everybody said yes. And so he even asked the professor, he said, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And the professor said yes. He said, well, I, I, I've got one more part of my experiment that I want to conduct. And I want you to come up here. And he took a table and he put a chair on top of the table and he asked the professor to sit in the chair on top of the table. 
He took the children's toy off of the line and put a 250-pound weight on this apparatus. He then brings it all the way up to the nose of the professor who is sitting in the chair. So this 250-pound weight is right here, and he says to the professor, as the weight is against his nose, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And the professor said, yes. Well, if you believe that, then that means that if I release this 250-pound weight, it's going to swing forward, and when it comes to the end, it will arc, stop momentarily, and begin to come back, but it will never come back further than the tip of your nose. So it won't smash your face. Is that what you believe? Yes. And so... The class is watching eagerly, and uh, I thought about bringing the apparatus up here, and I thought, no, I'm... Anyway, so the class was watching. He brings it all the way to the nose of the professor, and he releases the 250-pound weight, and it begins its trek downward, quickly hitting the bottom all the way up until it arcs, and it stops, just kind of hangs for a moment in the air, and then it comes back, and as it gets closer and closer, almost to the table, he said, I've never seen someone move so fast in all my life. As the professor jumped out of the chair, off of the table. And so then he asked the same question that I would ask you. Did the professor believe in the law of the pendulum? No. No, he, he didn't. If he would have believed in the law of the pendulum, he would have remained there, but, but he didn't. And I think that illustration helps us understand a little bit about what Paul is describing for us when he says that we are to place our faith in Christ. Three questions emerge. We often talk about putting our faith in Christ, but what does that mean? What does the word faith really mean? That's the first question that I think we need to ask. What is faith? Now, I want to tell you this. A dictionary is not really going to help you out because the American dictionary doesn't really give us a good definition of faith. It simply tells us that it is belief and, and truth. Well, in the Greek, the word that is used for faith is is much deeper and much broader than our understanding of faith in the English language. In fact, uh, the root word for the word faith, it comes in a noun form and in a verb form. In the noun form in the Greek, the word faith literally means to be persuaded. That's what it means, to be persuaded. Now, most of the time in the noun form, meaning to be persuaded, it is translated in your Bible as faith. So when Paul uses the word law of faith, it is the law of being persuaded. That is the word that he uses there. And in fact, in the verb form, it means the exact same thing, to be persuaded, but most often is translated believe. But both of them, both definitions, faith and belief, go beyond 
just the normal definition of belief because it's more than an intellectual understanding. It's more than believing a set of facts. To have faith is not simply to believe something about God. For example, we could say, I believe Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose again. And you can actually believe that, but that is not saving faith. It's believing facts. In fact, the scripture says Satan believes that. He knows those facts to be true too and is certainly not saved, not a follower of, of, of Christ. Uh, developing faith, this is one of the reasons that it's so frustrating sometimes when, when I hear uh, of people that are struggling and, and wanting to trust God and people will tell them, well, you know, you just need to, you just need to have more faith. What you need is, is, is more faith. The more faith you have, and, and, and listen, I want to tell you something. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's, it's who your faith is in that really matters. It's not that we have to just have, believe harder. You know, the facts are there, and I just believe them harder, and as a result of that, it's not the amount of faith. It's, it's who the faith is in, and, and biblical faith Saving faith involves more than just an adherence to the fact. In fact, I think there are at least three, and certainly there are many others, and I'm just going to give you three, and, and we can lump several in together under these three as categories, maybe to help us understand what biblical faith is. I would want you to understand, first of all, faith is, number one, a belief that God's revelation is true. So faith is believing that God's revelation is true. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God reveals truth to you and you believe it. And so we say, okay, I believe Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again. I believe those facts. Those facts were revealed to me. And so it begins with a belief in those facts. It begins with an understanding of the revelation that God gives in his word is true, but it doesn't end there. So not only do I believe Jesus lived and died and rose again, I also believe, as Paul would say, I believe what the Bible says about me, that I am a sinner separated from God. Paul spent three chapters telling us that we have a problem, and our problem is sin. And we argue with that and say, well, I, I don't know that I'm really a sinner. I'm not that bad a person. I make mistakes. I'm more a mistaker than I am a sinner. And Paul says, no, you're a sinner. And if you understand the revelation of God, he's revealed to you. And so you've got to understand, I believe what the Bible says about God, and I believe what the Bible says about me. And so faith begins there, but the second component of faith is not just a belief in the revelations of God that are, tr that, that, that are true, it is a surrender to that truth. The second thing that I have to do is surrender to that truth. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. I believe this chair will 
hold me up. I believe if I sit down in it, put all of my weight on it, it'll hold me up. I don't think it's going to collapse. I'm firmly convinced that it's capable of holding me up. I believe that fact, but is it holding me up? It's the same as the professor who believes the law of the pendulum. I believe that it will not come all the way back to smash my face in, but, but I'm not going to stay there. No, real faith means that I not only believe the facts, but I yield my life to the reality of that. And because I believe that, I'm going to sit down and, and test that, surrender to that truth. Now, the word that I could use to describe that for us today in saving faith would be repentance. Repentance is a component of saving faith. To repent means to, to change my mind about something. So what happens is God reveals truth to me. He says, you are a sinner. Well, I think I'm pretty good. But God says, no, you're a sinner. And so after accepting the revelation of God is true, I change my mind about what I think of myself. And rather than thinking I'm okay, I agree with God that I'm a sinner. I surrender to the truth, and so repentance is a change of mind, but that's only one component of repentance. Another component of repentance is a change of direction. It is a change of my mind that results in a change in action. Repent means to, to turn. It's an about face. It's like a, a, a soldier walking in one direction, giving the command by, by his uh, uh, authority to, to, to about face, to turn and walk. It is, I'm walking in my direction, doing what I want to do, and now I'm going to turn and do what God wants me to do. So saving faith is not just believing a bunch of facts. It's accepting the facts and the revelation God gives me and then literally surrendering my life to that truth to say, I, I don't just believe the facts, I believe what you said about me, and as a result of it, I'm gonna act on that. And it brings us to the third element of faith. Believing faith is believing the revelation of God is true. It is a surrendering to that truth, and it is, listen carefully, it is conduct that is inspired by the truth. In other words, it is to sit in the chair because I believe it will hold me up and I demonstrate my faith and confidence in it by acting on it. And if I believe that Jesus died and rose again, and if I believe that he is right when he says that I am a sinner separated from him and I cannot save myself, and the only way that I can be saved is to place my faith and trust in him, then I will yield to that and I will do that. And I will ask God to forgive me of my sin come into my life. And, and, and there will be a, a conduct in my life that is consistent with this truth. There's an exchange. I like the way Jesus said it on one occasion when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Remember that? But the next part of the verse is a part that we don't often quote. What does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I mean, that's, that's a great, yeah, to get everything and, and then die to spend eternity in, in hell. But the next part of the verse, he says this, and what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
there has to be an exchange, an exchange of all that I am for all that he is. It's the covenant relationship God invites us to. The, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the word testament can, can be translated covenant. It's the old covenant, new covenant. People in, the, in, in, in Jesus' world understood the covenant relationship that they could have with God. And he ultimately is saying that we enter into that covenant relationship with God by having a divine exchange. We exchange everything that I am for all that he is. And I say, God, I accept you and you only as Savior for my sins, forgiving my sins. I trust you and you alone, not by works, not by effort, not by anything that I do. It's you alone. That's what it means to place my faith in Christ. But the second question that emerges is this. What is the law of faith, or how does the law of faith uphold the law? Because what Paul does next is he always is anticipating what the questions might be from the audience that he's writing to. And he knows that those that are Jews within the congregation, the religious people in the congregation, are going to probably say this. Well, if we're saved by faith and not by keeping the law, then maybe the law's worthless, then what you're saying is that, that, that we're, if, if we're saved by faith, then our faith overthrows the law. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Faith upholds the law. You see, it is the law that says the wages of sin is death. The law requires death as payment for sin. But what did we learn last week? Paul said, but God in his forbearance. You remember what I told you what forbearance meant? It's a banking term. You owe money on a house, you can't pay, and the bank doesn't want to foreclose on it. They say, you know what? We've got too much property. We don't want to go in the real estate business. We don't want to take your house. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll enter into forbearance with you, and let's renegotiate the terms so that you can keep the house. And we'll renegotiate the terms. We may renegotiate the the, the interest, we may renegotiate the principle, we may change some things. Now, I never lose, the bank never loses its right to take that property if I don't live up to my bargain, but it changes the, uh, it, it changes the elements. And so what Paul says is that God in his forbearance, what he said is this, the law said the wages of sin is death, but God in his forbearance said this, I'm going to let Jesus die. in payment for your sin. So you don't have to pay the price for your sin. He's going to do it for you. And my forbearance, we're going to renegotiate this. And the death of Jesus will be accepted by me on your behalf, and you will be declared righteous in him. Through faith in what he has done, you can appropriate what Jesus has done for you by faith. That's why he says we are justified by faith. God looks at us just as if we have never sinned because we placed our faith in him. We believe what God says about it and we act on it, repent, turn from it, and there is an exchange. We give ourselves completely to God. Third question that comes along is this, and Paul answers it in verse 29 and 30. He anticipates again that there would be another question, and, and, and this would come from the religious people. They would say, okay, that, that's fine. Um, this, this faith, salvation by faith thing, that's good for those that are out there. 
But for those of us that are Jews, see, those people out there, those Gentiles, they don't have the law. But we've got the law. So, Paul, it's fine for them to be saved by faith, but for those of us in here, we're saved by keeping the law. And so the question that emerges is this, is there more than one way to be saved? Because they were saying, I think there's one way for them and one way for me. And you know what Paul says? No, same God. Same God that offers salvation to the Gentile offers salvation to the Jew. Same God died on the cross for the Gentile and for the Jew. And it's the same God, which means there's only one way to be saved. And it's not by works. And it's not by effort. And it's not by being baptized. And it's not by being good. It's not by going to church. And it's not by having more good stuff on the scale than bad stuff on the scale Paul said there's only one way, and that's to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that believes facts, but not stop there. Believes it to the point that they are willing next to place their trust in those facts. To embrace the reality and say, God, Here's the exchange. I give you me. And I want to receive you. I can't save myself, so I just say, God, here I am. I accept and believe that you came and lived and died and rose again. And I believe what you say about me as a sinner, and I believe that you love me, and I believe when you say that if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart, that God raised him from the dead, I'll be saved. And I believe that, and I'm going to do that. So I'm going to ask you, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. And I'm going to turn from my sin. And I'm going to let you live in me and through me. And Paul begins this conversation here that he's going to continue on throughout chapter 4 and following. So say, guys, this is where it begins. As you enter into a relationship by faith, you find the power in that exchange to live the life that God has called you to live. Ken Davis said at the end of his presentation, the most amazing thing about that whole experiment with the pendulum was that once the professor jumped off the table and everybody had a laugh, Another student in the class said, I'll do it. And they put the chair back on the table and they put the student and they brought the weight right to his nose and they let it go. And it swung down with speed and it arced and it stopped just momentarily. And then it began its journey back. And all he did was wince. And it came right to his nose and began its journey back. And he said, you know what? After he did it, everybody in the class wanted to do it. There's something amazing about faith. It is an adventure. But it's also contagious. When we step out and we trust God, the truth of his word 
and we give him our life, man, he leads us into an adventure. And when we live according to the principles that he gives us, as Paul's going to talk about in the remainder of the book, how we walk in the power of that exchange life. I get his power, he gets my weakness. Everything's exchanged. I get to walk in his power and I give him my weakness. I get to walk in his identity and he gets mine. All of those things. I get his enemy, he gets my enemy. And that's good because his enemy is already defeated, right? And I can trust him. So that exchange happened and it becomes contagious. So here's the question I'm asking you. If you're a believer today, how are you doing on this adventure of faith? Is the exchange life evident? You say you believe, but is there evidence of that in your daily walk? Because if there is, it's contagious. Others are going to want to know how they can have what you have. And if you're here today and have never accepted Christ, if you're trusting in being baptized, you're trusting in being a church member, you're saying, well, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized as a child. The Bible says, no. Nope. No, it's only one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. And God calls you to that faith today. Would you bow your head with me? So we give you opportunity to respond to this truth in this moment. Father, thank you for what you have taught us today. Help us now to take these truths and make application to our life. There are some in this room today and some that are listening that have never accepted you as Savior. Oh, they believe the facts. But they've never taken the next step to trust what you say is true and a willingness to say as a result of that, I'm going to abandon myself to that truth and I'm going to do what you say. And today is the day for them to receive you as Savior, to just simply say, I agree, God, with what your word says about me as a sinner. I agree with the revelation of your word that the only way I can be saved is through faith in you. And so today, I ask you to forgive me of my sin coming into my life. I turn from my sin as best I know how. I trust you. God, I give you my life here. Give me yours. I exchange everything I have, I give to you. And in that moment, Father, I know you've heard their prayer. You've responded. They've received that eternal life. And I pray that they will begin to walk in that experience for others in the room. May we be challenged from what we've heard today to walk in the faith you give. In Jesus' name, amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.